It's Friday, October 22nd. You've got Oz in your ears, the best of the best of Oz. How good does it get? Let's just find out. Oh, you're going to love this one from uh, Talking Points Memo. The Atlantic's Josh Green reports that millionaire businessman Rich Lott, the Republican nominee challenging Representative Marcy Captur in Ohio's 9th District, has an unusual hobby. He likes to pretend he's a Nazi. Lott, a Tea Party-backed candidate, spent time fighting another battle before he hit the campaign trail against Captur as a member of the 5th SS Viking Panzer Division, a group of Ohio World War II reenactors. I just love this guy. According to their website, the Vikings, W-I-K-I-N-G-S, strive to salute the idealists from occupied Northern Europe who saw the Third Reich as the protector of personal freedom and their very way of life and signed up to fight for the Wehrmacht and give their lives for their loved ones and a basic desire to be free. This is purely sickening. Green broke the story uh, this week showing the photos of Lott in his SS garb on HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher. Lott played it off as being interested in history. Yeah, I'm interested in history, but I don't reenact myself as Genghis Khan. I've always, this is Lot. I've always been fascinated by the fact that here was a relatively small country that, from a strictly military point of view, accomplished incredible things. I mean, they took over most of Europe and Russia, and it really took the combined effort of the free world to defeat them, Lot explained to Green. From a purely historical military point of view, that's incredible. Well, that's, is that short-sighted? Maybe we should just take the Nazis for their victories. I mean, yeah, they invaded people for no particular reason and the fact that they were more powerful and lusting for their blood and on and on and on, but let's go on. Lott added that he's absolutely not a supporter of the tenets of Nazism and pointed Green to the group's disclaimer on its website, which states, we need a disclaimer. This page or anyone involved in its creation or members of reenactment groups listed here are in no way affiliated with real radical political organizations, i.e. KKK, Aryan Nation, American Nazi Party, etc. They don't even belong to the etc. And do not embrace the philosophies and actions of the original Nazi Party and wholeheartedly condemn the atrocities which made them infamous. It's Purely a historical interest in World War II, Lott, a former grocery chain owner and member of the Ohio Military Reserve, told Green. But disclaimers notwithstanding, the site's discussion of the history of the Third Reich is oddly sanitized and presents the Nazi movement in Europe as in many ways as admirable and an idealistic cause. Germany reads the site's history section. Headed a strong movement in Europe to actively campaign politically and through warfare against the ideals of Bolshevist communism. Oh, so they went to war against ideals. Does that mean lots ready to go to Congress and go to war against my ideals? This culminated, the, the website says, in 1941 when the German armed forces were pitted against the very home of Bolshevism, Soviet Russia. They weren't pitted against them. They invaded them. 
With that intro, it should come as little surprise that the site also makes little mention of one of the units, this is the Viking unit's, other key roles on the Eastern Front, rounding up and murdering East European Jews. Through the rich history of the unit's performance in the Caucasus and the battles of Leningrad are listed on the page, some details of the real-life Viking Panzer Division appear to have been selectively left out. Members of the division assisted Einsat Group A in rounding up Ukrainian Jews. Witnesses report that the Jewish victims were forced to run a gauntlet formed by soldiers who would beat them as they passed, and when they reached the end of the gauntlet, Einsatz Group officers murdered them and their bodies were pushed into a bomb crater. Between 50 and 60 Jews were killed in this manner as a part of the larger Einsatz Group operation, which resulted in over 700 murders. That's just those murders. This is the group that would go into schoolyards and hang Jewish children from the swings. All right, they're re- these recreators, this man running for the House of Representative. You might be wondering why a politician would do something as objectively bad, optics-wise, as dress up like one of America's mortal enemies, no, the world's mortal enemies, and shoot guns at stuff. Lot claims he became a pretend Nazi for the normal reasons. All right, the normal reasons to become a pretend Nazi. He told Green it was a father-son bonding thing. I don't know where to go with this. Asked if he regretted dressing up as a Nazi, now that he's running for Congress, Lot said... What I regret is that we're wasting the time talking about this issue when we should be talking about the real issues that are facing the country today. My, oh, my. Forget the billion-dollar budget hold and layoff threats. The big debate in California right now is whether a bong war over legalizing pot could help boost Governor Moonbeam back into office. Seizing on new independent polling data, proponents of Proposition 19, the Golden State ballot measure that would make possessing and growing marijuana legal, argue the measure is going to drive younger voter turnout in such a way that it will benefit the Democrats statewide, from gubernatorial retread Jerry Brown to Senator Barbara Boxer. It literally is the thumb on the scale that has been generally missed by the polling models out there and is going to have an impact not only on the initiative, but everything else on the ballot, including the candidates, said Dan Newman, consultant on Yes on 19 campaign. This comes out of Politico, by the way. The community has been very active and engaged, he added, suggesting that there has been anecdotal and quantifiable evidence of voters being spurred on by the issue. There's an energy and enthusiasm that is literally unprecedented in an initiative campaign, he said. While the state Democratic Party is neutral on the ballot measure and its standard bearer and two U.S. senators are all opposed, Chairman John Burton gave a one-word answer to the San Francisco Chronicle back in April when asked at the party's convention what will bring out young first-time Barack Obama voters again. Pot was his answer. One word? Says it all. The liberal website uh, Fire Dog Lake has teamed up with Students for Sensible Drug Policy to form the Just Say Now campaign aimed at turning out college kids. Two independent pollsters say they're seeing evidence of what Rolling Stone magazine dubbed the burnout turnout effect in recent surveys. I like that. The burnout turnout. Wake and bake and vote. 
in most states, we're finding that under 30 crowd at about 6%. In California, we found it almost twice that, said Tom Jensen, head of public uh, policy polling. And you know, I don't think young voters in California are more motivated than in most states because they're really excited about going to vote for Jerry Brown. And we do see overwhelming support among the younger voters for the marijuana initiative. The latest polls show the race between Brown and Republican Meg Whitman as tight as in the contest between boxer and GOP nominee Carly Fiorina, although both Democrats have been opening uh, slim margins. But in both the PPP poll released September 22nd in a recent field poll, Proposition 19 is leading solidly. The PPP survey had it at 47% saying they'll vote yes, 38% saying no, and 14% undecided. Field released last week had supported 49% and opposition at 42%. But that survey also found that young voters are the biggest proponents of the measure, with the under-40 crowd supporting at 59% to 33%. I certainly recognize the difficult position the Democrats are in, having a deeply demotivated base, and so it doesn't surprise me they would turn to the Hail Mary Jane strategy to get their voters excited, said Rod Nehring, chairman of the California Republican Party, who by coincidence was driving to Weed, California as he spoke to Politico by phone. The Hail Mary Jane, if that's his own, he's a Republican with a sense of humor, and he ought to be put in a museum. People should come by and say, look, a Republican with a sense of humor. The measure is being watched nationally, with some Democratic strategists reportedly looking at at it, and if it passes, using it as a motivator and wedge issue to put on the ballot in some states during the 2012 elections, a move many political watchers say would be fraught with peril. Well, they think anything to do with pot is fraught with peril, of course, because, gee, just think, if pot brings you out to vote for Jerry Brown, that first election's free. But from then on, you may become a truly registered Democrat. You may even join politics. You may get informed. You may join local committees. You may become a responsible citizen. Nobody on the right wants that. What's that all about? What's it all about? Mr. and Mrs. John Q. Smith from Anytown, USA. From De Huff. Even though the unemployment rate remained flat at 9.6% in September, the labor market would now need to add a total of about 11.5 million jobs to restore the pre-recession rate, according to analysis from Heidi Shearholz, an economist with the Economic Policy Institute. The economy lost about 95,000 jobs last month, including temporary census workers. Not including census positions, roughly 18,000 jobs were lost, as the private sector addition of 64,000 jobs couldn't offset the 83,000 jobs cut by state and local governments, whose unusually severe deficits have led analyst Meredith Whitney to predict that the next major financial crisis will come from municipal debt defaults. The state and local cuts included 58,000 teaching jobs. This is really serious. They're beginning to talk about the fact that the states and the cities within them are going bankrupt and these jobs are going. And the only way they can come back is an influx of money from the federal government. And we're about to put a bunch of idiots in power who think that that's socialism. Even worse, European-style socialism. And a lot of them don't care about education anyway because that's just all them smarty-pants elite. The true numbers could be even worse. 
The reported numbers of jobs lost in July and August were revised up after the initial reports. According to Sheerholtz analysis, the economy is down about 8.1 million jobs from where it was when the recession began in December 2007. Considering population growth, the economy should have added 3.4 million jobs during the recession, Sheerholtz notes. To fully recover, the country would need to add 11.5 million jobs. That's a huge number. And population growth continues to make it bigger. To fully recover in five years, Sheerholtz says, the country would need to add 300,000 jobs every month for that entire period. Did you hear that? 300,000 jobs a month for five years just to get even. Where in the world do we start? Okay, Dave, this is from the Daily Beast. How can you not love Carl Palladino? It's oh. it's great to have these yeah, yeah, bullies. Yeah, I love it too. Yeah, I mean, these bullies, these ignoramuses, but they, they keep things flowing, you know? Uh, Carl Palladino says kids shouldn't be brainwashed into thinking it's okay to be gay or to be taken to a disgusting gay pride parade. That's no. where he's at, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he yeah. had no problem when his son William ran Cobalt, a nightclub once dubbed buffalo's gay club of the moment no you're kidding me and he had no problem cashing the rent checks from cobalt and another gay club called bubbles too both of which were located for years in buildings he owned from may 2004 through july 2008 william palladino co-owned a nightclub on delaware avenue in downtown buffalo okay liquor license records show the club was run under the corporate name 2975 group llc while the building was housed in was owned by one of carl palladino's many companies the huron group llc all right so that that's fine uh now a march review of cobalt in the buffalo news described it as way gay Wait, day. Noting the queens, the techno, the cocktails, the kind of gyration normally confined to Manhattan was in full flaming force oh, at no, Cobalt. Not, not in, in Buffalo. In his son's running. No, no. At some point yeah. in late 2005, the club's name was changed to Tantra. Kevin Van Wagner, then a Cobalt bartender, recalled a rapid switch to a straight clientele. The way they did it was really horrible, he said. They told us we were no longer going to be a gay bar and that we were no longer going to have jobs. He said the owners kept Cobalt's three straight bartenders and got rid of the rest. They got rid of all of us gay people. So he's, he's really, really, really nice people. Mm-hmm, you know, and mm-hmm. They got rid of us all. And they changed um, the club name to Tantra? Yeah, yeah. What, they expect couples? What is this, an Indian love nest? I don't know. Tantra's been going downhill yeah, uh, ever since there was a guy who was stabbed in the back there. Just, oh, just, I was, just, he's trying to one of those positions where yeah, you yeah, get the girl yeah, and yeah. the thing. Yeah, with, with the knife. With the knife. September 2006, the state pulled the liquor license, citing assault and booze. Cobalt was the only gay club he owned because uh, Bu- Bubbles 2 was housed in one of his buildings, operating under the name Queen City Entertainment. It described itself as a bar <laughs> where anyone and everyone is welcome and prejudices are left at the door. That's probably where he collected them all. Bubbles 2. Yeah. Let's make our way down to Bubbles 2, Bubbles' we? landlord may not have been welcome. Over the last three days, Paladino spent much time attacking what he calls the, I love this, the homosexual agenda. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's gone through all this, then he got that rabbi, the the Orthodox rabbi, who got him to talk about. uh, Well, here's the thing. Paladino owns so much real estate in Buffalo that it would be hard, if they had a gay club, it would be in a building that he owned. I mean, the chances are pretty good. His son running it, that's a little suspicious. But, you know, did you see the picture of him bear hugging 
He's going down the streets now, hugging everybody. He gives everybody a big Carl Palladino hug, you know. Yeah, and probably picks their pocket. Oh, watch that. Well, picks their pocket. That's a that's a that's a that's a that's a pistol. He got stuck in the belt in the back there when the but hands he's, But he's not him. without his supporters. Man. Oh, really? I mean, hordes of politicians and pundits are blasting him, you know, but conservative columnist Ann Coulter came to his defense and, and on back. Fox okay. News Channel yeah. calling him a great warrior, great warrior who wants to cut taxes. <laughs> Thank you, Ann. The woman who can't go to her own, uh, what do you call it, family reunions. They won't have her. I wouldn't have her. As I drove off the ferry onto the mainland recently, I read an election sign that accused the local Democratic congressman of bankrupting the country since 1992. I'm getting whiffs of 1932 and 1984 here. 1932. Bankrupting the country since 1992. Read, we're in this mess because they stabbed us in the back. Hitler did a great job of convincing an angry and dispirited German people that all their problems lay at the feet of the not-me. It was the Jews and the commies in 32. It's Obama and the liberals today. 1984. The barrage of lies and slander coming out of the right-wing media maw is Orwellian in proportion. Thanks to a reactionary majority on the Supreme Court, secret money from anywhere, inside and outside the country, is pouring into the campaign, doled out by the likes of the Koch brothers and Satan's little helpmate, Karl Rove. Six months ago, when the Tea Party was beginning to steep and the Republican far right was beginning to draw blood from the president, I called up my reserve of American optimism and figured that the people's common sense would come to the defense of our democracy. It didn't. Goebbels was right. I was wrong. In a time of desperate confusion and economic collapse, 30s Germany in the throes of the Great Depression, and present-day America in the grip of the double dip, it would take a nation of philosopher kings to accept their share of responsibility for the disaster and devise a reasonable plan for healing the Commonwealth. We have been so numbed and weakened by our addiction to trash TV, empty calories, and bogus credit that, as it stands, we are incapable of standing up to the anti-democratic forces co-opting our economy, our ecology, our foreign policy, and our civil liberties. We are being occupied by hostile forces just as certainly as the 13 colonies were occupied by the British. We need a second American revolution to free ourselves. Instead of a tea party, a TV party, unhook our flat screens and let Glenn and Sarah and Sean stumble in the darkness. Turn away from the happy meals of the undead and cook up ourselves a local farm fresh future. Take a look at that hand of credit cards we've dealt ourselves. How long are we going to stay in the toilet pulling for a flush? We don't have to wait for November 2nd to wake up. Obama is a truly decent man with the patience and humility of our first president. Speak up for him. Speak up for the vision of America he has risked his political future to create and defend. We are the people. We can do it. Well-educated, well-fed, and well-intentioned, we can take this country back from the forces of ignorance and greed. Remember, no Tom Paine, no gain. Give me that guitar. All right, everybody. It's a little song. Now, thank you very much. A little song I learned upstream in prison one day. Everybody sing along now. Ready now? This land is made of mountains. This land is made of mountains. This land is made of mud. 
This land is made of mud. Land has lots of everything. This land has lots of everything. For me and Elmer Fudd. For me and Elmer Fudd. This land has lots of trousers. This land has lots of trousers. Mousers. This land has lots of mousers. And pussy cats to eat them when the sun goes down. Thank you very much. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Here's a story out of Politico about one of my favorite freaks, Newt Gingrich. In August, Newt Gingrich compared backers of a mosque near Ground Zero to Nazis putting up signs at the Holocaust Museum. In September, there was this assertion that President Barack Obama is motivated by a Kenyan anti-colonial worldview. And early October already has brought a declaration that Democrats are the party of food stamps. It has been a busy season for the former House Speaker, who seems every few weeks to return to a playbook he first began using three decades ago, lobbing rhetorical grenades into the crowd and basking in the uproar that follows. Gingrich is used to hearing gasps of outrage from his Democratic targets, but his latest provocations have also brought groans and rolled eyes from Republican quarters, where some prominent figures warn that Gingrich's instinct for bombast is an obstacle to his being taken seriously as a party leader or a promising presidential contender in 2012. Wouldn't that be something? An Obama-Gingrich election? Whew! The squirming on his own side highlights a predicament for Gingrich. In some ways, this should be his moment, the kind of harsh, attack-based politics that were novel when Gingrich first began specializing them during the late 1970s have become in many ways the norm in the modern political media environment. But some skeptics, including some Republicans, who say they wish Gingrich well, contend he has never learned the difference between going to the edge and going over it. Earlier this year, he wrote that Obama and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi are part of a secular socialist machine that is as dire a threat to the country now as Hitler's Germany or the Soviet Union was in the past. This is a college professor. No, this is an ignoramus. And Democrats suggest he has been trafficking so long in ostentatiously partisan statements, Bill Clinton recently called it Gingrich's shtick, that he has devalued his own currency. A longtime associate, former Representative Vin Weber, said Gingrich knows that his sharp tongue can wound himself as well as his political opponents. The two men last week traveled on the campaign trail in Weber's home state of Minnesota. He's keenly aware of the fact that he has to be more disciplined if he wants to run for president, said Weber. He wants to try to discipline himself. It's impossible. The man is a child. Based on his conversations, Weber said, There is no doubt in my mind that Gingrich hopes to be the GOP nominee in 2012. He absolutely wants to run, and I think he intends to run. Two of the most important commodities in a candidate running for president are focus and discipline, and he's got neither, said an advisor to Mitt Romney of Gingrich. He could be a great help to the party if he'd so choose, if he'd only help with messaging and ideas and be less of a provocateur, but that's not what he wants to do. Gingrich's longtime spokesman, Rick Tyler, offered a robust defense of his boss's rhetoric and said leaders who speak bold truths often cause more timid listeners to recoil. These aren't bold truths. This is balderdash. These are lies. These are... These are the worst kind of garbage coming out of American politicians. There's nothing bold about it at all. Reckless, yes. Bold, no. 
They are the same people who were upset when Ronald Reagan called the Soviet Union the evil empire, he said, adding that FDR, too, said some pretty provocative things in World War II. Yeah, World War II. Yeah, he was heavy on the Nazis. Yeah, he was heavy on the Japanese. We're at war with them. They were beasts. This is Obama. He's president of the United States. He's not a socialist. He's not as dangerous as Stalin and Hitler. Gingrich is a fool. The Atlanta Constitution, which endorsed Gingrich in some of his early races, switched sides in 1978 after what it said was a campaign that had gone beyond vigor into demagoguery and plain lying. That's it, a lying demagogue. I think it's a good description of Newt Gingrich. His invective in the 1980s tormented House Speaker Tim O'Neill, who complained that a Gingrich speech on the House floor calling Democrats appeasers was the lowest thing I've ever seen in my 32 years in Congress. And Jim Wright, who later wrote that, at heart, Gingrich is a nihilist who, across his career, has been intent on destroying and demoralizing the existing order. Hmm, A liar, a demagogue, and a nihilist. And he wants to run for president. Maybe he's just what we need in 2012. He can run with Sarah Palin or Christine O'Donnell or the devil's daughter. More than a decade earlier, Obama and Pelosi have provided... More than a decade later, Obama and Pelosi have provided Gingrich with new lyrics to a familiar tune. He has played it in books and on the platform as a commentator on Fox News. In a speech last spring, he said Obama is the most radical president in American history. (laughs) The secular socialist values he and other top Democrats stand for, he argued in his most recent book, represent as great a threat to America as Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union once did where he commented on this garbage. In an interview last November, Gingrich advised that Republicans should treat Obama's coming legislative victory on health care just like the Nobel Prize, i.e. shrugging it off as much ado about nothing. Not long afterwards, though, he had reversed course, calling the health care bill the most corrupt legislation I have seen in my lifetime and speaking favorably of how most Republicans would vote to repeal it if they win back Congress. Newt. Ah, why doesn't somebody neuter this guy? After I was born, I went home to watch my TV. Everyone was nice and the smiles were so sparkly. I watched what made them happy and I watched what made them cry I learned about toys and candy my mommy should buy and the TV God watches over me opens up my eyes shows me how to see all around the world every night and day on my TV teaches how to love teaches what is real tells what life is of tells me how to feel all I need to know I can find and see on my TV Soon I was a teenager and I knew just how to dress I learned to use deodorant so I would always smell my best I got myself a part-time job to buy the things I needed to have And the payments on my supercharged Camaro really aren't so bad And the TV God watches over me, 
opens up my eyes, shows me how to see All around the world, every night and day, on my TV Teaches how to love, teaches what is real Tells what life is of, tells me how to feel All I need to know, I can find and see on my TV Everybody be careful, everybody be be very careful, keep watching your TV There are people who are laughing with a wink or a nod There are people who are questioning our great TV God Everybody be careful, everybody be Be very careful, stay tuned to your TV There are ponies who are talking, there are wasters who read There are people here who do not even own a TV Everybody be careful Oh, everybody be careful Oh, everybody be careful Everything I know about my country, I learned on TV The man on the screen tells me who is our enemy They say that we are free and we must fight to be number one So when the army calls, I'll grab my TV, my car and my gun and the TV God watches over me, opens up my eyes, shows me how to see All around the world, every night and day, on my TV Teaches how to love, teaches what is real, tells what life is of, tells me how to feel All I need to know, I can find and see on my TV Oh, this is a hard one to read. It's out of Time magazine. It was one of the stranger news stories in a long time and one of the most polarizing. Firefighters in rural Tennessee looked on as a house burned because the family who lived in it had not paid the $75 annual fire protection fee. Their home was destroyed, along with three puppies that were inside. What is more striking than the story itself is the debate it has set off, which has been raging now for more than a week. While the firefighters have come in for considerable criticism, a surprising number of commentators have come to their defense and lashed out at the family that lost their home. Oh, my. They, the firefighters stood there and let this house burn to the ground with the doggies inside. Well, there is a special place in hell for them. And when they come to that place, these three dogs will, will morph between Cerebus, the dog of hell, and the little mewling puppy about to have his life fried out of him because his owners had forgot to send in their $75 check. Yet underlying the Tennessee fire debate is something much more serious and fundamental than the back and forth talking head battles about who is more at fault in the incident. At a time when lots of Americans are debating who should have citizenship, the case of Jean and Paulette Cranick's burnt down house hints at the more profound issue of what that citizenship should mean. The word commonwealth comes to mind, the commonwealth, your house, my house, all the houses on this block, in this neighborhood, in this town, deserve to be saved from fire. The Cranics live in Obion County, Tennessee, outside of the city limits. This means they do not automatically get fire service. They have to pay a special fee. Family says it has paid the fee in the past, but claims they simply forgot about it this year. 
When the Cranick's home caught on fire, the firefighters showed up, but only to help out a neighbor whose property was in the fire's path, who had paid the fire fee. Gene Cranick says he offered on the spot to pay whatever it took to put out the fire, but the firefighters refused. It might seem that the firefighters would have a legal duty to put out the fire, but no, their boss had called them and said, put out the fire, you're fired. This is insane. This is, this is inhuman. This is crazy. But you see, in this case, the firefighters did not work for Cranick's County. They worked for a nearby city. Their position was that they had no more obligation to put out the fire than the New Jersey firemen would have to answer a call from New York. And they might answer a call from New York. They probably have a lot more civic sense up there. Obion County, Tennessee. Just cut around it and take it out of the country. Many observers were quick to find in the Cranick's burning house a parable for the increasingly harsh times in which we live. But some conservatives and libertarians had a different reaction to the Cranick story. It actually gave them hope. Sick. Glenn Beck, the conservative radio and television host and secret cross-dresser, my speculation, attracted the most attention. To prevent people from sponging off of their neighbors, he insisted, we are going to have to have these kinds of things. While Beck defended the firefighters, an on-air sidekick made fun of Mr. Cranick for trying to get the fire out and mocked his southern accent. Now, when he goes to hell with Glenn Beck, right, the dogs will be there, but they will eat his kidney and then it will grow back and then they will eat his kidney again and then it'll grow back. I tell you, this man is doomed. On conservative blogs, many of the commentators echoed Beck's views. The loss of the home to fire was indeed a bad situation for the homeowner, not for anyone else. One poster declared on Red State, a right-leaning website, Jonah Goldberg writing in the National Review Online. The National Review, I mean, I went to Yale not much after Bill Buckley. He's my elder, but I don't think he's probably more than 10 years older than I was. So I was in his wake there. And and even though I have no great love for Bill Buckley's right-wingism, the man generally was a gentleman. And the, the National Review has plummeted. It has lost its sense of decency. Jonah Goldberg, writing in the National Review Online, said that letting the home burn was sad. Oh, thank you, Jonah, for your sense of pathos. But he argued it would probably save more houses over the long haul since people will now have a strong incentive to pay their fees. Yeah, somebody that you don't cure from cancer because they live over the county line. Well, lots of other people aren't going to get cancer anymore because they see what happened to them. Another writer on the same site was harsher, indicting people like the Cranicks as jerks, freeloaders, and ingrates. Sig Heil. There is a major debate underway today about what citizenship should mean and what you should get just for being an American. It's not, of course, a new debate. During the Great Depression, Franklin Roosevelt expanded what citizens got through the New Deal. He created emergency assistance programs so people would not starve and minimum wage and maximum hours laws to protect workers from the worst excesses of the free market. Then you have this guy like Miller in, in, in Alaska that's saying unemployment insurance is unconstitutional. Today, there are politicians and commentators who want to push in the other direction to water citizenship down and turn Americans into mere customers. In this view, you should get things, including basics like fire service, not as a right of citizenship, but as a privilege with a price, right? You ain't got the shekels, it 
burns, baby. You ain't got the scratch. <laughs> Take a match. These are large national issues, but they are also questions that local governments are answering individually. Obion County, where the Cranics live, has looked at a variety of ways of paying for fire services. If it put a small tax on uh, uh, electric meters or simply raise the property tax modestly, it could do away with the fire fee entirely. That's the right way to go. Living in a country or city or town should bring with it a minimal level of rights that don't depend on whether you, your check made it in the mail. Not luxuries, not frills, but things like having the flames put out when your house is on fire. I am deeply ashamed of this country. This looks like a microcosm of America to me. From the New York Times. The United States is helping senior Taliban leaders attend initial peace talks with the Afghan government in Kabul because military officials and diplomats want to take advantage of any possibility of political reconciliation, Obama administration and NATO officials announced this week. So now we're bringing the Taliban, our enemies, right? Our, our stated enemies who are killing us as we speak. We're going to bring them to the table and reconcile them because we can't beat them, because it's an occupation. It's not a war. It can't be done. Listen to this story. You'll see it's the beginning of the end. Even as senior American officials cautioned that they were not yet ready to formally join a nascent peace effort with their Taliban foes of the past nine years, they acknowledged that the reconciliation effort was an important element in the American-led war in Afghanistan. We have achieved nothing. Whatever opportunities arise that are worth exploring, we ought to take advantage of that, said Defense Secretary Robert M. Gates, appearing before reporters with Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton at a NATO conference here. Both of them know it's all over. Mr. Gates said he did not know whether this leads into something concrete, but he added, we need to be open to opportunities that arise. Mrs. Clinton was even more cautious about the pace of the peace talks. She acknowledged during an interview that Americans might be squeamish about the idea of negotiations with the Taliban, which harbored Osama bin Laden and other figures in al-Qaeda before the attacks on September 11, 2001. Excuse me, Hillary, please. They're still harboring Osama bin Laden, or his remains at least, and tons of other al-Qaeda people. But she said the American public at some point might have to swallow the idea of reconciliation with the Taliban to achieve peace in Afghanistan. You call that peace? What's going to happen after we leave? You don't make peace with your friends, Mrs. Clinton said. She said she thought it was highly unlikely that the leadership of the Taliban that refused to turn over bin Laden in 2001 will ever reconcile. But she added, stranger things have happened in the history of war. The remarks by President Obama's two highest national security officials, who are attending a meeting of uh, NATO foreign and defense ministers, were made as the leader of Afghanistan's new peace council, Burhanuddin Rabbani, confirmed in Kabul that contacts with members of the Taliban have been made through mediators and that the international support for direct talks had added new momentum to the effort. Let's get straight, folks. Karzai wants to keep his head on his shoulders, knowing that he's going to have to make some sort of deal with these guys. It's probably not going to work. He's going to flee into exile. We're going to leave, and the Taliban are going to take over their part of Afghanistan, and the people in the north will keep their part. It's going to be hell on wheels. 
I don't know how it's going to be solved. Maybe someday we'll have the perspicacity to put our efforts behind a United Nations effort, but of course we hate the UN because they're all part of those failed attempts to be like us. NATO and American officials confirmed this week that the United States and NATO were doing much more to try to encourage a peaceful settlement than officials had previously disclosed, including granting permission for former fighters and insurgents to travel to preliminary peace talks in Kabul. So these guys that are out in the field right now killing our men are allowed to come in, do a little talk, little schmooze, have a little tea, go back start killing Americans again, and other NATO members of the willing coalition. NATO Secretary General Anders Fogh Rasmussen said this week that the approach made sense. Beats me. This political reconciliation process is Afghan-led, Mr. Rasmussen said at a news conference, but our position is that if we can facilitate this process through practical assistance, then why not? Afghan's president, Hamid Karzai, has been trying for many months to persuade Taliban leaders to join his government, and his efforts intensified after Mr. Obama announced last year that he would begin scaling back American troop levels in Afghanistan in July 2011. American officials had previously said they did not expect to begin serious reconciliation efforts until they had degraded the insurgency in Afghanistan to the point that Taliban leaders would conclude that they had no choice but to pursue peace with the Afghan government. Shades of Vietnam. But few military experts think the Taliban's ability to fight has been degraded at this stage. In fact, despite an increase in airstrikes and intensified combat operations, this week has been an especially deadly one for NATO forces. 25 service members were reported killed between October 8th and Thursday. That's about, what, 15, 16 days. What a terrible, deadly time. On Wednesday and Thursday alone, nine service members were killed in southern Afghanistan, two in the east, and three in western Afghanistan, indicating insurgent activity in many parts of the country. The high number of deaths in the south is perhaps the least surprising because there are intense NATO combat operations there. Some administration officials have argued in recent months that the American military, backed by drone strikes, has at least rattled senior Taliban officials enough that they may be more amenable to a deal. They are just blowing smoke up their own butts. The official caution, the officials caution that the outcome of the reconciliation efforts is deeply uncertain. Still, Mr. Gates said Thursday, we have always acknowledged that reconciliation has to be part of the solution in Afghanistan, and we will do whatever we can to support this process, even if we can't bring them to the table because we've whopped their butts. Dave, the Chicago Sun-Times reports that the name of Green Party gubernatorial candidate Rich Whitney is misspelled Rich Whitey on electronic voting machines in 23 wards, about half in predominantly African-American areas. I can't believe it. So we oh, wonder if the brothers and sisters are going to vote for Rich Whitey. Yeah. Uh, all right, so the error only occurs on screens voters would see when they are reviewing their choices. Whitney's name appears correctly on the initial screens, but officials say the error cannot be corrected before Election Day. Jim Allen, spokesman for the Chicago Board of Elections, told the Sun-Times he expects 90% of voters on Election Day to be cast, of votes to be cast on paper ballots, minimizing the number of voters who would see the misspelling. I don't want to be identified as whitey. 
If this is happening in primarily African-American wards, that's an, that's an even bigger concern, Whitney told the Sun-Times. The paper said he's considering legal action. I don't know if this is machine politics at play or, or wh- how this happened. The latest Rasmussen poll shows Whitney drawing about 2% of the vote. He'll probably lose. No. have a, we want to vote for Rich Whitey? Hey, man, look, Rich Whitey, I know, at least he admits it. Let's vote for it. Sun-Times headline for Wednesday, November 3rd. Rich Whitey loses. This little gem from the AP. At least five companies in California's multi-billion dollar adult entertainment industry have halted production after an actor tested positive for HIV and more shutdowns were possible, the head of a major production company said this week. (laughs) The actor's identity and gender have not been released by the Adult Industry Medical Healthcare Foundation, the clinic where the case was discovered, a clinic I don't ever want to visit. The clinic was working to identify and test on-screen partners of the actor. Vivid Entertainment Group and Wicked Pictures announced production halts Tuesday as a precaution. Vivid founder Stephen Hirsch would not name the other companies that had shut down, but said more might follow. He's probably got 30 or 40 of these little seamy companies, you know, all turning out this great stuff. From Vivid's perspective, there was no question that when we heard this, we immediately shut down production and said, let's get the facts and evaluate them before we move forward, he said. Adult entertainment companies act responsibly, and no one wants to see another person test positive if there's anything they can do to stop it. Los Angeles County health officials and state occupational health officials have said the widespread lack of condom use on porn sets puts performers at risk of contacting HIV and other diseases. Adult film producers say viewers find condoms to be a turnoff. Oh, really? So if everybody wore condoms in adult films, nobody would watch. Uh Uh-huh. You know, it's going to come to that. You know, this absolutely. They're finally going to put helmets on bicycle riders and condoms on porn stars in California. Last year, a woman tested positive for HIV after making an adult film. And in 2004, an HIV outbreak affecting several actors spread panic in the industry and briefly shut down productions at several California studios. Read Garages. In recent years, advocates and health officials have tussled with porn producers and free speech advocates over the use of condoms in adult films. What have condoms got to do with free speech unless they've learned to talk through another orifice? State workplace safety officials at Cal OSHA are considering strengthening rules designed to prevent transmission of disease by requiring the use of condoms in the adult entertainment industry, and the sooner, the better. In an average month, Vivid spends, now get ready, Hollywood moguls, $250,000 to shoot four movies! which require a total of 12 to 15 days of shooting, Hirsch said. Why, things would really be slowed down all that time taking on condoms and taking them off and putting them on and taking them off. Good Lord, the company currently has a stockpile of unreleased movies, and it would take months without any new production activity to affect Vivid's release schedule, he added. Think of all those fabulous films, all those fabulous, intricate, sophisticated, meaningful, intimate plots that were being denied because of a mere HIV shutdown. Isn't this America?
the United States may be heading for an intensifying confrontation between the gray and the brown, says author Ronald Bronstein. Yes, as we trip into the double dip, older white folks are being replaced by brown and black kids, and in a decade or so, young non-whites will be the national majority. In response, older white folks have gone just plain crazy. It's the simplest explanation for the mania that has gripped a vast segment of our over 50 white boomers. They are being simultaneously overwhelmed by the not me and the not it. The not me is every member of the legion of young people of color, any color, any shade, that increasingly dominates the popular culture. The not it is the new reality of disappearing jobs, evaporating credit, and diminishing resources that overnight replace their familiar world of American exceptionalism. Look at the crew of white seniors-to-be leading the reactionary charge against anyone who smells like the not-me and anything that smacks of the not-it. There's Rush Limbaugh morphing daily into an even more poisonous windbag. The self-anointed Glenn Beck calling on God Almighty to strike down his ever-growing enemies list. And Laura Schlesinger who vomits up the N-word when a woman of color has the temerity to call her show. Who's listening to these pious pusbags? The overwhelmingly white and over-50 Tea Party for sure, and 71% of Republicans identify with the Tea Party. It's the revenge of the getting old people. That's why, back in January, the entire GOP congressional delegation locked arms and brayed nay at every piece of Democratic legislation. It's a form of magical thinking. Say nay long enough, and the problem will go away. But it won't. If the super-rich and the super-pissed orchestrate a midterm bloodbath and send a gang of know-nothing yahoos to Congress who blame sunspots for global warming, American Muslims for Al-Qaeda, and masturbation for the decline of family values, well, things will get really bad really soon. States will go belly up, the infrastructure will crumble, unemployment will skyrocket, and the dream of the return of that shining gated city on the hill will fade away. The angry greys will have to step aside and let a younger, multi-hued America put this country back on the road to recovery. Oh, this is a dandy. It's all about my favorite Ayatollahs at the Preboy Mansion on uh, C Street. It's from the Washington Post, wouldn't you know? A group of Ohio ministers has asked the Internal Revenue Service to investigate the organization that sponsors the National Prayer Breakfast because it received money six years ago from an alleged Islamic terrorist organization trying to finance illicit lobbying. Clergy Voice, the activist group that, that wrote to the IRS commissioner, complained that the Fellowship Foundation violated its obligation as a tax-exempt organization not to deal with such entities. The foundation, an Arlington-based religious enterprise associated with a house at 133 C Street Southeast, where several members of the House and Senate have rented rooms, acknowledged Wednesday that it had received two $25,000 checks in May and June of 2004 from the Missouri-based Islamic American Relief Agency. 
Now this, this place on C Street, is the infamous Playboy Mansion where a manly group of Christian congressmen gather to defend the nation against liberals and Satan. And they are so manly that they are found time and time again screwing their secretaries. They're always having interventions where they run into one of these bozos rooms, wake them up and say, you have been screwing your secretary and you've got to stop that right now because it's, it's bad as a Christian and it's just bad for the house. And, and these guys, I tell you, there's been a lot of stories about them. They've got a lot of youth groups, kind of, that they play a lot of basketball with young guys. Anyway, the charity was included, this charity that they took the 50000 from, was included on a Senate Finance Committee list of terrorist financers in January of that year. The foundation said the agency's money was neither retained nor used to finance foreign trips it had organized for lawmakers such as Senators John Ensign and Tom Coburn. I mean, Tom Coburn, he's the poster boy for the far right. They're the ones that, that, that spend taxpayer money to go out and Christianize the world. The group's vetting of donors has been tightened. Glad to hear that. President Richard E. Carver said in an interview Wednesday, hopefully we would not see a repeat of this kind of experience, he added. Hopefully? You mean it might happen again? You might, Osama might walk in wearing like a Xenia suit, hand you $100,000 in bullion and say, just make nice with it, boys. The Islamic American Relief Agency was raided and shuttered by federal agents in October of 2004. But in the months after its inclusion on the Senate committee list, it mounted a quiet lobbying effect to clear its name. Carver initially said the group had checked up on the charity at the time the money came in and found nothing, but then said later in the day that he had received incorrect information and that no such checking had occurred. Oh, really? Really? No checking? Islamic what? Friendship organization? Sounds good to me. Extensive government wiretaps and data collected in the raid led to multiple federal indictments of the relief agency's officers. They culminated in a guilty plea four months ago by Chief Executive Murabak Hamed, in which he acknowledged sending a $25,000 check to the International Foundation in May of 2004. Carver said that was one of the names of his group. One of the names! Hamed, in his plea, said the purpose was to pay for lobbying by former Congressman Mark D. Siljander, a prominent social conservative who promised to help the agency get off the Senate terrorist financing list. Ooh, I love it! Siljander, in a July courtroom appearance, pleaded guilty to serving as the charity's unregistered agent in meetings with lawmakers on Capitol Hill and admitted lying to federal officers about his role. Guys at the Prayboy Mansion, I mean, there's some scum walking around there. They're taking uh, jihadist money and lying to the government. I wonder what else they're doing behind them closed doors. The Justice Department has said the money involved was stolen from a grant given to the charity by the Agency for International Development in the late 1990s to finance relief work in Mali. Siljander knew at the time that the charity was controlled from Sudan, and he suggested that his payments be rooted through foundations, according to his plea. So they money laundered Sudanese jihadist money. These people should be shuttered immediately. 
Carver said that at the time, Siljander, a fundamentalist who has attained prominence for advocating closer relations with Muslims, sure, as long as they retain closer relations with his offshore accounts, was an associate of the Fellowship Foundation, and that it has long been the Foundation's practice to process donations and payments for all 200 or so associates at its 300 affiliated ministries. Its annual budget is about $16 million, he said. The money he says, probably came in at a time when nobody thought there was a reason for Mark to do something wrong. I mean, there is a time for Mark to do something wrong? That's what what, what Carver said. We uh, never had any reason to expect uh, we would get anything like that. These are just ignoramuses. The Justice Department, in an October 2008 indictment, said the foundation had sent only part of the charity's money to Siljander, but Carver forwarded a statement by the group's accounting saying that 100% of the funds were distributed in Siljander's wages and benefits. They laundered the money! An IRS spokesman said the agency is not permitted to comment on the tax status of nonprofits. Well, when they take away their nonprofit status, maybe they can comment on it. Okay, Dave, let's tang out here now at the end of another wonderful show. This isn't only tang. This is lipo. Oh, but it, there are a couple of shorties. Here. I guess I, I guess I'm I'm using the sobriquet tang for all of this wonderful Chinese poetry. It doesn't matter what century it comes from. Well, we pretty They're much have so been robust, sticking you know? to the eighth and ninth centuries, and well, they we're are. branching, man. Right? We're branching. Well, we we can. We've been there earlier, third, fourth century, and we'll yeah. probably get a little later. But uh, here's a couple of songs, really, about uh, a, a, an area in China that Li Po really loved, which I'm not going to try to pronounce accurately. Chu Pu, it is. Here they are. How like a bolt of white silk is this water, turning the earth into a flattened sky. But I would rather seize this moonlit night to board a wine boat and view the flowers. And here's the other one. The furnace fire lights up earth and sky. Red sparks fly pell-mell into purple smoke. Young men's faces are flushed in the moonlit night. And a song reverberates in the cold river. Oh my, oh my, and a song reverberates. They know in the how cold to, river. They know how to have yeah. a good time. You know, Let's go down to the river, Hammer. Let's drink under the moon and get ready for the next uh, show. See you there. See you soon. <laughs>